This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr Doolittle and we have a lot to discuss this morning. First up, we have a special guest in the studio. Martin Williams is a postdoctoral research fellow in structural biology and medicinal chemistry at Monash University. He has a special interest in psychoactive substances and their role in contemporary science. He joins us today to talk psychedelic drugs and their potential uses. Hello, Martin. G'day, Stephen. Hey, are you a doctor? What title am I meant to be giving you? I'm a postdoctoral fellow, so I'm a research fellow with a PhD. I'm not a practising uh, physician or a, a practitioner of medicine myself. Fantastic. And we also have Cyber Sue. G'day, Sue. Good morning. What are you going to talk about this morning? You tell us. Um, so I'm kind of concerned about this big 5G rollout across the world. The big 5G rollout across the world. <laughs> Trainer wheels. G'day. Good morning. Hey, you're closing in on becoming a doctor. You're a medical student. Now, where are you up to? Uh, it's, hard. it's hard to define now because I'm having a year off, so I don't know where I am really. About halfway through? A bit more. And what are you going to tell us about this morning? I'm going to talk about this doctor who was um, suspended for six weeks for professional misconduct. Mm, I'm excited mm. to hear about that. Not doctor who was suspended for misconduct, <laughs> but the doctor... Comma, who was, who was. yeah. <laughs> and panel beater. How top, are you, man? Top of the morning to you, Doolittle. You know what? I was going to introduce you as the Stig of healthcare. Although I don't know that everyone remembers who Stig is. And from I don't that, think um, Top Gear are very cool anymore. No, I think they so sort of, yeah. probably not. You know, in essence, you're our um, provider of solid, solid, unbiased healthcare commentary. Is that right? Yeah, that's your latest title. Every week I come up with a <laughs> yeah, new yeah. one. And that's yeah, new job description it. each week. No pressure. And you're going to tell us, you're going to give us your third instalment yep. about uh, self-help. Yep, we did a little bit of um, attempt at defining it uh, last time around, last month, this week, taking a look at same, what I'm calling the big five complaints about or critiques of self-help industry. I'm excited about this because I've got complaints about everything. In fact, you know, in many ways I'm a professional complainer. But before we get into all that, we're going to go with the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Okay, gang, we are back. So, Trainer Wheels, you've got this sort of tantalising story about someone being um, uh, de- suspended yes. over some comments they made in the past. Give us a bit of a rundown. Yeah, okay. So, uh, I can't remember the doctor's name, and that's probably a good thing because maybe I shouldn't use their name anyway. Um, so, this doctor was found to have made um, offensive comments on social media. It was on a forum based in Singapore. Yep. Um, but he's a practising doctor in Australia, graduated from medical school in Australia. Um, should I say what some of the comments are? Or yeah, just... I think so, because they're, they're all pretty... in the newspaper. His name and everything's in yes, the newspaper yes, for a start, pre- so none of it's um, secret. Yes. Uh, the point being, he was a medical student in Australia when he made these comments, but he made them on a Singaporean chat site. That's right, but he's also yeah. made f- further comments last year while right. since becoming a doctor. So yeah, and they're now... offensive comments mostly of a sexist nature. That's right, yes. Um, calling for some, time, so, some women deserve to be raped was one of the choice comments he made. Um, so he was 
found he's he's been suspended for practice from for six weeks um, for professional misconduct by the medical board. I suppose I'm not very good with bureaucracy and stuff, so I don't yeah, know if I'm using the essentially the, right the words. medical board. Each state has a medical board, and APRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Agency, oversees the whole lot. And there's boards for you know it's about twenty odd professions covered by APRA now. You know, podiatrists, physios, etc., etc., including doctors. Thanks, Doodle. I knew you'd know the details of that for me. Um, so he was practicing in Tasmania at the time of making these comments, but he's now practicing in Victoria. He's been suspended for six weeks. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I've seen a lot of commentary on it on social media since. Um, a lot of people saying that it isn't enough, that six weeks isn't enough. He, he hasn't been given any um, compulsory re-education. I or... thought he, actually, one of the articles I oh, read really? said he had six weeks and during that time he had to do a course on responsible use of social media. Okay. I wonder if responsible use of social media is quite the issue here or if it's sort of or if being it's a even respectful possible. person. Yeah. <laughs> it is a really interesting one because it's that... You know, I, I think we've been we've known for a while that something like this is going to start blowing up with social media. People let loose with their personal opinions in social media that then become public. In the past, people would have said all sorts of offensive things, regardless of whether they're doctors, mechanics, lawyers, whatever, whatever, but it's mostly private and you don't hear about it. And medicine's always had, like a lot of professions, always had um, a, some sort of criteria that says you have to be a good person. Which I find interesting. I was looking at what the actual code of conduct is and I think maybe it's a little bit vague and maybe particularly with social media and now that everything can be kind of um, put in writing and can be, you know, forever available to search and stuff, maybe it needs to be more explicit. Um, The code of conduct is that in professional life, doctors must display a standard of behaviour that warrants the trust and respect of the community. This includes observing and practising the principles of ethical conduct. So that sounds more like what you do at work rather than outside of work. And what this guy was doing was outside of work. But I guess there's something about... It sort of goes on to say that patients trust their doctors because they believe that in addition to being competent, their doctor will not take advantage of them and will display qualities such as integrity, truthfulness, dependability and compassion. And I guess the fear is if this person has these views which are offensive that that potentially might affect the way they care for patients of certain groups, certain types of people. And his example was pretty obvious. He said horrible things, you know, blind Freddie. Everyone would agree that he said horrible things and it's not on. But I guess I become uncomfortable where people start judging my personal views and attitudes to inform them of my professional practice. You know, like I do some pretty stupid things in private. Sometimes I smoke cigarettes. You're not going to... You're going to be shocked. So I do stupid things. And I'm scared that my private life, you know, my public life will be judged. And I know the way people judge certain things in a professional circumstances can be pretty harsh. And uh, now... And that's where I feel slightly uncomfortable, although this case doesn't make me feel uncomfortable because this guy was a dickhead and said stupid things. I agree with you. It's tricky, isn't it? Because there does need to be a line somewhere, but it's uncomfortable where that line is going to end up sitting. When I was listening to you read the um, Code of Conduct, was it? Um, I was trying to listen for something that we could pin on the quote that you gave. Mm. And we can say the the quote the tweet was offensive we could in fact you know call his character into question etc cetera, etc cetera. but was there anything in the code that he that he um broke well i mean they found that he did so i guess we can trust the the process if we want to hmm. trust it that they they found that he was guilty of professional misconduct and the it, medical board's really strict they they they're not you know that that's a 
it's essentially a court. Mm. Of, so there were other comments that he made too. That one I gave was yeah. one example, but there were other things he and said too. And it was too. sustained over time too. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just that. There was other stuff. He also talked about how if I ever get divorced... Uh, it'll end in murder and... Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he also sort of went on to talk about how oh, I'm a doctor and I can do what I want and I can behave how I like and there's not a particular way a doctor needs to behave. And Like, he was he was really sort of making a big thing of how he was a doctor and but he can still be an asshole if he wants to be, kind of. And it's a long... It's a bit like the um, the, the football player that's recently... Ex- exactly. Mm, and, you know, where, where are the boundaries of that professional and personal kind of uh, putting things out in the public? And it's about what we think on the inside and what we can display on the outside. It's a whole new world, isn't it? Of, and you I know, can, sorry, oh, you sorry. go, you go. I was going to say, I had a, a, I'm just trying to think of a good way to identify this one. We had a similar case about 20 years ago in the early days of websites mm. when, one of, when a doctor who was working in our service sent us a letter about something and he just happened to have his website on the letterhead. So it was... You know, so you could see. And, and I just, like, back in the day, oh, someone's got a website. Back then, you know, it was unusual, so I typed in the web address. And there it basically said, hi, I'm Dr Such and Such, and I'm interested in, um, let's say, fishing, swimming and hardcore pornography. <laughs> that was essentially what it said. And these are my favourite sites. And it listed a whole lot of fishing oh, sites and then a whole God. lot of hardcore porn sites. And I was flabbergasted. And, I, you know, and I didn't know... To, and, but, and it also said where he worked and which... Um, college who was a member of and all this sort of stuff and so I, I took it to my boss at the time I was the head of a service at the time I took it to my boss and said what do we do about this and so there was lots of head scratching because no one knew back in the day mm. quite what you did about it but in the end it, we all decided and the hospital decided that essentially it was offensive and he was identifying himself as an employee so the hospital basically told him either remove your interest in hardcore pornography or <laughs> remove the links to us and which he right. did. And he was, which one? He was appropriately <laughs> embarrassed. It was, look, you know what? These days it wouldn't have been a big deal. Back then we thought pornography was really rare. Now we know it's a third of the internet. And <laughs> if someone says they're interested in hardcore pornography, oh, yeah, people sure. sort of go, yeah, which show on Netflix do, do you watch? Sort of thing. So it's, but it, they're, they're funny sort of situations as, as our social development changes, as it is now with social media. And how we get our head around these things is tricky. I think it's not just Final that. Comments. I wonder if it's also that there's a certain expectation from the public, which I think is reasonable, that their doctors are going to be a certain type of person and that person doesn't hold certain views that might be offensive mm. or hurtful or harmful for a certain group of people. And do we teach that in medical That's school? Right. Or and is do that we... part of the screening process to become a doctor? Exactly. It's, it's, it's tricky because and then who decides... Begin and exactly. Where does it begin and end? What if they've got racist views? I've heard yeah. racist views for years and we all try and argue them down, but are we going to... Oh, I, I just don't know where it begins and ends. Yeah, yeah it's, it's tricky. tricky. But we'll have to draw a line under it. We, have, we know where it ends right now. It ends here because we have to move on because <laughs> this is the news. Now, Cyber Sue, you've also been casting your eyes over... Um, the 5G network. Yes, I have. Well, on Anzac Day, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, in his Anzac Day talk, spoke about the need for Australia to roll out um, our own 5G network and to not be relying on America, China and so on to, to bring that out for us. And um, most of us know that 5G is widely touted as the kind of new future connectivity way to enable telemedicine, remote medicine, AI, driverless cars and so on. Um, But I thought it was worth kind of looking a bit further into that because there are some people who 
um, are concerned that we're jumping into it a little bit too um, readily. And we actually need to step back and look about some of the potential safety impacts of this 5G network. Um, and around the world, the standards that are being used to check the safety are quite old standards. They're a good number of decades old. And do we know whether there are actually some health effects side effects from the 5G. Um, many studies do show that... Um, Can I just pull you yeah, back one second? Yeah, yeah. The, the 5G network, I mean, I think everyone's probably a little bit smarter than me, but when you said you are talking about this, I typed into Google, what is 5G? Yes, I'd like to know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got 2G, 3G, 4G. They all um, use different electromagnetic fields. I'm not a clever person either, but 5G is the new one that's better than everything else. It's between 150 to 600 times faster. It's way faster. And what it does is it has to, it travels much shorter distances. Yep. So it means you have to have these kind of connecting cells a lot closer. Like those big poles with all the... Exactly. Yep. So now instead of having poles every few k's, you have to have these little cells, these transmission cells, and they have to be a lot closer because the transmission is more intense and shorter. And so what that means is that we can't help but be really surrounded by this kind of network of wireless... Of some sort of mm. radiation, yeah. for want of a better word. That's exactly right, and we can't avoid it. And there's some groups that are potentially more susceptible to the impact of it, like pregnant women, infants and children. And because it's going to be used for our fridges, for our heating, for everything, it's just everywhere. Because so, I know yeah. with the old networks, you know, there was a debate that went on for ages about mobile phones and your proximity to everything and whether they cause brain cancer and everything else under the sun. And it always seemed to me, we covered it a number of times on the radio over the years, it always seemed to me the conclusion was the science does not support any damage. However, the science isn't fantastic and so we can't say for sure that there's no damage. That seemed to it's be... Right. And, you know, most senior people said, listen, it's pretty damn safe, everyone, stop worrying. But then the more nervous people amongst the scientific community would say, yeah, but we can't say that for sure. So this That's is basically right. an intensification of the amount of radiation or whatever it is, waves, et cetera, et cetera, mm. in our in our community and so it's raising that exactly. same question again. And because once it's there, there's no getting away from it. And we've learned from history that sometimes we roll these things out mm. and it's too late. And the other risk that the other concern that some scientists have is that it's very industry driven. This is a multi, multi billion dollar impact of having this 5G. Everyone has to have new telephones, you know, the whole whole there's a lot of money in it. And so there's a real risk of it being rolled out regardless and blindly. And so that's why some scientists are saying, just step back, look at how we're measuring it. Are we measuring it in the right way? And do we need to think about this a little bit more carefully? If we were trying to find a policy analogy, would it be um, uh, the introduction of cane toads or would it be climate change? Climate change is something that they do, um, has been compared to it actually. Yeah, yeah, and that once we've once we're once we're on that trip, where it's too late. Some right. countries have already got it, I believe. I think because I, when I looked up what is five G, it talked about. Um, I think it was South Korea has already got thousands and thousands and thousands of five G poles up everywhere in multiple countries. So have they started doing studies in the places that are a bit ahead of us? Um, so in the EU, they claim that it's safe. But they don't really know, and um, mm. this is this is the problem: is that they how are they measuring it? They measure it on the impact of um, the thermals on raised body temperature, but they don't think that's the right measure. Some scientists who are arguing against it, and it's it's on its way. I mean, America wants to have the whole country five G enabled by twenty twenty. Um, as what? I say, that's next year. That's next year. Yeah. The genie's out of the bottle, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're already kind of got to find a way to live with it rather than turn it off. And industry is driving it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Three, 
triple. Ah. Um, I'm uh, Doolittle. We've got trainer wheels on my left. We've got panel beater on my right. We've got Cyber Sue on my left. But we also have a special guest who I've already partly introduced, but I'll tell you again. Just to put you to reorient, reorientate you, Martin Williams is a postdoctoral research fellow in structural biology and medicinal chemistry at Monash. He's currently working primarily on novel antibiotic research, but his interests include psychology and pharma. His interest in psychology and pharmacology have led him towards the multidisciplinary study of psychoactive compounds and their roles in contemporary society. And uh, we read an article in the conversation that he wrote, and so that is what led to us inviting him in, which was essentially about psychedelic drugs. So, um, Martin, kick the kick the. Um, interview off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you ended up being someone from antibiotic research, structural biology, into psychedelic drugs and, and sort of modern compounds. Well, Doolittle, it's, uh, it's probably basically the company I've been keeping for a number of years now. Certainly the research I do is, is, is relevant in some ways because medicinal chemistry is, is all about uh, developing compounds that will have effects in, in medical applications. So um, that is very relevant to, to these other interests. But, of course, uh, I've become increasingly interested over the years in mental health. I've had a number of friends who have been suffering from the... the kinds of mental health conditions that many of us many of us do in society so particularly anxiety depression yep. uh, a number of people with post-traumatic stress disorder um, and so I, I've also been um, increasingly interested in the uh, global psychedelic research program uh, in efforts to, to, to have these treatments um, explored uh, their benefits demonstrated uh, and then potentially for them to be applied in um, in broader society. One of the things I love about mental health, because it's basically a really young science in terms of healthcare, you know, compared to, say, you know, mm. infectious diseases and mm. some that date back hundreds of years, neurology and whatnot, um, there's so many different uh, professional backgrounds of the people who are in the field, which makes it so mm. exciting and so, uh, you know, genuinely multidisciplinary. You know, what's it like coming as someone, you know, from a very sciencey background and and having an interest in an area that's so vague and esoteric in many ways. Yeah, great question. It's uh, it, it's certainly uh, challenging in some ways, but I guess one has to uh, put the put the science on hold sometimes and just have conversations with people that, that involve much more uh, focus on faith, I guess, on on uh, yeah, just the broader picture overall. And I think really, uh, mental health is such a fascinating field because it can have so many implications for our physiological health as well. Uh, it, it's really, um, in many cases, just coming down to connections between people. And so I think it's been, from my point of view, developing those connections and then having a common, a common interest, a common purpose, uh, and then finding ways to, uh, to explore, potentially implement for the benefit of all. So, Martin, your um, your work, obviously, uh, I think part of what Doolittle was saying, it's really interdisciplinary in a sense. So you're not only looking at the pharmacology of um, um, psychotic um, medicines, mm-hmm. um, but you're looking at the the practice of therapy that That's is associated right. with the um, with the medicines, right? That's right. So this is really uh, a nexus between psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy, effectively. And so we're really only just starting to understand some of the uh, the pharmacological or neurophysiological effects of, of psychedelics. And that uh, is research that's starting to to take place again after what was effectively a twenty to thirty year uh, hiatus because of the global hmm. war on drugs. Which which really came into play around 1970 71 when psychedelics, <laughs> along with a whole lot of other compounds, were um, 
uh, were prohibited globally, and that really closed down uh, mm. research, which really could have could have informed us to such a great degree that we would be f- much further down the track, I think, in mental health treatment than we are. Seventy-one. I think Nixon called Timothy Leary the most, most dangerous, dangerous man, man in, in America. America. So yeah. maybe you should tell us what psychedelics are. I think nearly everyone knows, but just we're talking about LSD and any other drugs that can cause hallucinatory experiences. Sure. So psychedelic, uh, as a word, has very um, uh, very innocent foundations, basically. It was coined by a psychiatrist called Dr Humphrey Osmond. Um, he was a British-Canadian psychiatrist, and he was in quite regular communication with Aldous Huxley, the, the celebrated novelist. Uh, celebrated novelist. Uh, and um, they were trying to find a, a word to describe these compounds, which at that time were mescaline and LSD in particular, but also psilocybin, and we can go into those in, in greater detail. And so psychedelic is simply from the Greek meaning mind Manifesting, and so people who have any uh, experience with these compounds will know that um, that they're primarily phenomenological, experiential compounds, which can really bring thought processes up to the up to the fore, right in front of them, uh, and can also in, in uh, engender major, um, rather unusual sort of thought patterns and connections and so on. So quite often uh, deep memories might be accessed but they can lead to a totally new sort of analysis of a person's situation and that's why that's how they can be such powerful compounds. Um, so psychedelics classically are compounds that act at a particular receptor system in the in the brain and the prefrontal cortex primarily uh, and that is called the serotonin 5A and 5C, it's, sorry excuse me, 5HT2A and 2C receptor system. Uh, but in fact we tend to give honorary psychedelic status to a couple of other drugs as well. So MDMA, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, uh, or otherwise known uh, as ecstasy, is one that is also in many ways mind manifesting, but it works on a, on a different system. It actually releases um, serotonin into the brain, so that actually increases the effects of serotonin in the brain itself. You know, it's... It's interesting the way you talk, you know, you talk about the experiences that these drugs create. Um, it's sort of hard to describe them, though, isn't it? I mean, most people, if people have tried them, I'll be honest, I haven't tried them yet. Um, and uh, so I, I, I haven't got the right words, and I've read about it many times. Mm. Uh, I've seen lots of TV shows where, you know, people have gone out into the desert and taken mescaline and had some sort of epiphany. As a... Someone who's never tried it, it all just sounds a little bit um, bullshitty, to be honest. Yet, oh, yet I see it and I hear it from everyone, and they tell me it is absolutely not. It's like a once in a ten year epiphany. They they describe these epiphanies that just seem amazing, but as someone who's never experienced it, I don't know. What? Well, after this 20-year period in the wilderness, um, uh, when psychedelic research became a, a possibility again, in fact, the the first main clinical trial was um, was of psilocybin in healthy people. So yep. psilocybin, of course, is the, the main uh, psychoactive component of what we call magic mushrooms. Uh, so that might be something that's familiar to people. We really prefer to use the word psilocybin because that is, that's the pure psych- uh, psychoactive compound, of course. Um, but uh, that first research, uh, starting in about 1999 and through to 2005, was studying the effects of psilocybin in healthy people, yep. specifically on their mystical or spirituality, you know, their mystical experience. Um, and so uh, the people who uh, who were subjects in this trial pretty much um, 
confirmed the results of a trial way back in 1962, which was under the tutelage of Timothy Leary at that time mm. at, at Harvard, uh, which found that these experiences were rated by the participants among the top most uh, five most significant experiences of their lives. It's incredible. Equated to yeah. um, the, the loss of a parent or the birth of a child. Uh, and so these, are, yeah. these can be very, very powerful if they're, if they're administered in a, in a supportive and appropriate environment. So, Martin, does that mean um, that we all hear about taking take, about taking these drugs in our in our personal lives and so on? Is there a scope for microdosing? I've heard about this, or taking small doses that maybe could be more amenable to Steve for, to to Doolittle, for example. Yeah, sure. So microdosing. I can't is... handle much to say. I, I appreciate that you're looking after me. <laughs> Yeah, microdosing is another very interesting avenue of research. Yeah. And by definition, effectively, microdosing is the taking of a sub-psychedelic, sub-perceptual dose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the aim with that uh, microdosing is to, uh, to benefit uh, creativity, uh, low-level anxiety, um, generally just for a, a, a mood boost, which many, pieces, uh, many people, let's face it, could, could do within mm-hmm. their daily lives. But uh, at this stage, it's been very difficult to, um, to study microdosing, A, because the compounds are still uh, scheduled, so they are still illegal to possess and use, except mm. in a research um, context. And it's been very difficult to, uh, to establish... Pl- placebo-controlled, randomised-controlled trials, which really would conclusively demonstrate the benefits. But yeah. So just give us the broad brushstrokes of which areas of mental health people are considering using these drugs or what they're trialling them in currently. You've sort of mentioned a couple already, anxiety, depression, and you mentioned psychotherapy. Sure. What are the broad brushstrokes? All right, so I think we have to make that distinction between what you might call the, the mood or affective disorders, uh, which are otherwise called the neu- neurotic... Sim- um, anxiety and depression, anxiety essentially. Anxiety depression, uh, and the psychotic disorders. Yep. Uh, there's certainly... Uh, there was a lot of fear-mongering back in the day, um, but some of it, of course, was... was was well-founded that uh, these drugs could actually cause psychosis. I think it's more commonly recognised now that they mightn't necessarily cause psychosis in people who are not already susceptible, but they certainly could exacerbate or accelerate psychosis in people who do have that predisposition. So is that different to um, marijuana, for example? That appears to be different yeah. to, to cannabis or to uh, to stimulants such as methamphetamine and so on. Uh, but I think we also need to unpick... Uh, the potential for extended sleep deprivation also to cause psychotic symptoms in people who just have unfortunately have a substance use problem with with a stimulant for example uh, that might include methamphetamine or uh, or cocaine um, who spend six days on the pipe or whatever and and just without sleep uh, do actually lose their marbles as well to, to coin a to coin an expression but it's um application in therapy though my understanding is it's in three main areas right it's in terminal illness it's in ptsd and it's in addiction is, a, is that the case that's right yeah so uh, in terminal illness we're talking about the treatment of anxiety and depression associated with the terminal illness uh there's no there's no um uh, suggestion that these drugs could actually cure uh, cancer or mm. a terminal illness it's really easing the anxiety, the pain, the existential distress that's associated with a a terminal prognosis. Uh, Addiction is another very interesting one, and that seems sort of a a little uh, paradoxical, I guess, that a drug that um, for many years has been in what they call Schedule 1 in the US or Schedule 9 in Australia, both of those, by definition, mean drugs which um, uh, which have an addiction potential, they have uh, high... um, 
uh, risk of danger and they have no demonstrated medical benefit. And I think we're really seeing at this stage that these compounds have very little, if any, addiction potential because they are non-self-reinforcing. They're actually self-limiting in experience. Mm. Uh, and also they, they quite clearly are being shown to have uh, medical applications. And notwithstanding some street rubbish, they're non-toxic. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. There's been no demonstrated toxicity from psilocybin, from mescaline or, uh, or LSD. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe that the, the most celebrated case um, uh, demonstrating the lack of toxicity was a, um, a group of eight uh, dinner party guests in San Francisco back in the 70s who... Um, who racked up what turned out to be lines of LSD and they thought it was cocaine and uh, after dinner. Um, <laughs> so you can imagine a line of crystalline <laughs> Good um, They all ended up in hospital, of course, with, with serious hallucinations, delusions, but uh, they're all discharged within 24 to 48 hours you know, without any lasting can I just, harm. Because this just, you know, strikes me. There's a lot of people in this world, and I'm the leader of this, people who are easily led. Now, if I was sitting at home listening to the radio... Right now, I'd probably, if I wasn't in here with my sort of hat on as host and being responsible, I'd probably go, I'm going to get me some of that and give it a try. Now, surely that's why everyone was so, is so worried, is that if we talk about these drugs so freely and, so, um, and talk about their benefits and their lack of side effects, are we scared that, you know, there's a lot of risks involved? As a scientific community, I imagine that's what everyone's worried about, that, you know, you might get the odd bit of benefit for um, therapy, but at the end of the day, you're going to get a whole lot of people saying these drugs are safe, let's, tr- let's all try them. Turn Surely... on, tune in, drop out, do Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sure. What do you you know? What are the risks? There must be some risks. Well, the risks are, are really uh, mental health risks rather than physio- physical physiological risks. Yep. Uh, we make quite a sharp distinction between clinical application and non-clinical use. Uh, we prefer really not to use the term recreational use because it tends to trivialise. Whereas many people will actually take it in a non-clinical context. Um, but nonetheless, for reasons of um, effectively self-medication or for the betterment of their of their their life experience. So, uh, but nonetheless, we uh, we definitely um, are advocating. Uh, clinical use in a controlled environment with medical support, so that if uh, and with careful screening of people. So, if, for example, they might have a pre-existing heart condition, which could be um, which could be exacerbated by metham- uh, sorry, excuse me, MDMA, for example, mm-hmm. uh, then those people would be strongly discouraged from taking part in a clinical trial or clinical clinical treatment. So, Martin. There's clinical trials going on at the moment in Melbourne, is that right? Uh, we're, we're soon to commence the first clinical trial in Melbourne and that'll be at St Vincent's Hospital mm-hmm. uh, and that will be using psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of anxiety and depression associated with terminal illness. So how do people find out or become recruited to that? Or? It, it's, uh, it's a matter of getting in touch with the, the palliative care team at St Vincent's Hospital. Uh, we are aiming to treat uh, 30 people so that's a reasonably, it's a good number of participants, but over an extended period of time, basically due to the, um, the fact that we have quite a small clinical team, we'll have two pairs of two therapists. And then, yeah, go on. Oh, no, no, no. It's, I was just going to ask, why is it particularly to palliative care and anxiety and depression related to end of life? Right, so uh, palliative care is one of the several contexts in which we could, uh, we could um, 
engaged in clinical research and it happens to be the specialisation of the team at St Vincent's who became interested in this treatment. So that is their daily daily work and so they were, they were really looking for alternative uh, approaches to treat people suffering anxiety and depression who just were resistant to other standard treatments uh, and so this this has come through as a as the first of hopefully a number of trials uh, we are also uh, in the wings we're hoping to get a, a, a treatment um, a clinical trial for treatment resistant depression underway as well also also in Melbourne uh, so yeah we're, we're, we're casting the net further afield but it just happens to be the first trial that we're uh, that we're able to get approvals for. Martin, um, I'm really interested in where the obstacles are to getting this um, into into circulation, into you know mainstream. Mm. Um, I would have thought my my intuition is that if big pharma saw money in it, they'd be into it. But I suspect the profit margin on benzos and SSRIs is so great that there might be some resistance from pharma. Is that uh, fair to say? That's very true. And and another aspect of this uh, of psychedelic psychotherapeutic interventions is actually that. Uh, the the drug is only administered usually on one or two, maybe yeah. three occasions, yeah. um, compared with the administration of, a, of an anxiolytic or an antidepressant medication, which is often daily for extended periods of time, years, decades even, for, for the rest of somebody's life. So these are probably not strong profit-making um, prospects yeah. for pharmaceutical. And the other thing, of course, is that these are natural products or they are derived from from Mushrooms. nature uh, and so they're well beyond patent protection so uh, even MDMA was was first patented in in 1912 by Merck a, a large a German pharmaceutical company at that time they were not looking for a, a, a drug which would increase um, therapist uh, alliance between the therapist and the patient or uh, or reduce hypervigilance which are two of the major effects that MDMA has been shown to have in the therapeutic context uh, they were looking Looking for drugs which would um, which would uh, regulate blood blood flow, clotting, and so on. Um, Martin, just to finish this segment, I also want can you tell us a little bit about you've got two groups going that help I, I understand in the regulation of all this and are in the um, the way you work in the community. One's your website Prism that I've had right. a look at, and there's also Mind Medicine Australia. That's what right. are these two groups, and what role are they playing? Okay, so Prism was established in 2011, so you can tell that we've been on this uh, little journey for eight years now, and we've really just finally had this breakthrough. And I'm very, very, um, very pleased, very gratified that we've that we've been able to identify clinicians who are willing to 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 um, get on board with this research. So Prism stands for Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, and the website is prism.org.au and we are affiliated with a number of other research groups around the world but we are effectively coordinating, uh, seeking funding and eventually communicating the results of these clinical trials. Mind Medicine Australia is a a charity that's been established within the last six months um, basically to uh, negotiate the regulatory processes that would be required for rescheduling of these compounds and for their approvals uh, to communicate to the broader community the, the clinical trials and potentially the results and also um, eventually hopefully to uh, in be involved in therapist training for the therapists of the future who will be uh, specifically trained to apply the psychotherapeutic uh, models which uh, seem to be uh, very important in in this um, in this approach to treatment you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia we have Cyber Sue. We have Trainer Wheels. You've just been listening to Martin Williams talking about psychedelics. 
But next, we have the panel beater. Now, uh, he's been doing a... We've we've been trying to do a few different themes this year on radiotherapy, including carrying stories over, um, having shows that are around particular topics. We've been playing around with our format. And this is one of the format changes. So, um, panel beater's been talking about self-help, the self-help industry from various perspectives. And today is episode three... Episode three, but I'm going to take full advantage of um, of Martin's presence and, and then move into talking about these five main criticisms of it. Um, Martin, there was a book published uh, last year by Michael Pollan. Well, most people know Michael Pollan from his attention to food, um, um, but last year he published a book called How to Change Your Mind. Um, and notwithstanding your comment a moment ago about recreational casual use, um, you've read the book, absolutely, and have you got I'm some thoughts? Uh, I mean, in in some some ways this is very much a self-help book right it is in many ways uh it's really been amazing to see michael pollan come on board because he writes so beautifully but he also writes with uh with a uh, basically a a sense of balance and lack of uh, evangelical zeal which i think is really important to to maintain in this conversation overall Uh, and so i'm i'm working with a number of wonderful people here in australia on this project but uh, really, we're we're absolutely adamant that the the evidence will be will will always come first, and that uh, we um, we need to uh, make sure that we're not uh, encouraging the kind of hype and evangelism that uh, unfortunately seems to seems to accompany people's uh, conversations about this subject. Yeah, yeah, and perhaps that's part of what um, Cyber Sue was referring to, because I gather in Silicon Valley the microdosing and the um, uh, is very much evangelical. You know, this this supposed um, doors of perception if you like, That's you right. know, yeah. Yep. Yep. So the placebo response is probably alive and well, it would have to be said. That's in, in the problem with all of this. You know, I'm a little bit involved in marijuana research at times and, you know, no matter how many times we say it, the patients still come in and say, oh, I know that doctors won't admit it, but marijuana can um, help cure cancer, which it just cannot. Yet so many people get caught up in the evangelical side and they start believing it. And that's what bothers us about the risks. Anyway, I'm worried I'm going to get off sidetracked mm-hmm. and, oh, and, stuff. Yeah, and so pinch on panel beaters' time. <laughs> well, I suspect psychedelics are, you know, good old-fashioned self-help in many respects, yeah. you know. Um, I have it on good authority. Um, the um, How about we move on to... Yeah, move on. <laughs> Before <laughs> you have to plead, is it the fifth where you self-incriminate? Yeah. <laughs> which, is the, which, which amendment do we plead if we're in the United States? Anyway, no, just like tell us about the problems with self-help. Yeah, OK. The so criticisms. More yeah, criticisms or critiques of it, right? And I think the first thing to say is that... Um, there's bound to be some good. So by, by focusing on what the critiques are, it's not to ignore the fact that there is some good to be said about them. It's just that that's where the focus is. Um, the next thing to say would be um, just return to that definition of it. For our purposes at Radiotherapy, yep. it's self-help that's around things that are behavioural um, or things that are around uh, your relationship to the world in which you move through. Right. So it's not that corner of self-help which is about um, wealth building or not necessarily about um, self-help that, um, yeah, yeah, might be non, non-radiotherapy type stuff. So we're really I'm looking totally at the confused. health. Yeah, you're soldier on. Soldier Hang on. on. Which, which is so not about how to tidy your house, for example. Not about to, how to tidy your house, unless you Isn't know. Self help, though. Just so we're obviously talking about it in the health context. We're not talking about self help for finances or whatever. But isn't it just anything you do yourself, self 
you know, maybe guided by others, but stuff that you do to try and improve your health? Um, yeah, your your behaviour, so um, self-help around addiction or yep. self-help around happiness, um, self-help about relationships, mm-hmm. self-help about workplace, um, but not self-help about wealth, productivity, not Marie Kondo, cleaning up, right. not... Um, Simplifying your life. Yeah. Right. I, I never read any of those things. But yeah. Yep. Goodness, they look fun. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I never read anything. I ever read the title. And if you can't figure it out from the title, what's the point? Sorry, go on. So with that in mind, the, with that in mind, uh, the, the, the top five main the criticisms, top five criticisms that I've been I've already to... written down one to five on my bit of paper in front of me. Okay. Yep. Number one. That, um, that self-help, um, by way of um, making itself relevant, has to reinforce people's perceptions of infor- inferiority or, or shame or inadequacy of some sort, right? So um, the product that the self-help industry is selling is um, ostensibly a claim to being a solution to something. So in order to uh, present yourself as a solution, you have to tell people they have a problem. Right. And um, we, I, you know, we've spoken on radiotherapy many times before that, um, you know, telling people they've got a problem, whether it's something about how they look, if it's something about um, their relationships. Or... I suppose the the problem with self help is it's not that you've got a problem; it's that maybe you are a problem. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's right. And um, the, I think you know the sociology of that would be that um, whether the the reason you're seeking help is something uh, to do with yourself, or is it something external about the world that you move through. So, anxiety and depression medication, for example, might be a, a diagnosis on an individual, but there's lots of claims that anxiety and depression is socially um, organised by the sort of world we live in with the different pressures and stresses. Even broader, what about happiness? I mean, you know, no, that's a little bit on the nose in the last sort of five years, but up until that, you know, there was, a, I don't know, thousands of self-help books about how to be more happy, creating this impression that we're all meant to be happy every day of the week, Yeah, which, of course... You know, it's largely nonsense. Well, it's not, and, and you know, the happiness is a is a cracker of a genre in um, in self help. Um, and thinking about medication in that regard, if there was in fact a pill that you could take where you were permanently happy, right? Nobody would ever suggest that people take that. That would be Soma in Huxley, um, you know, and, um, uh, and 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 certainly that grey area around, um, you know. Grief, the symptoms of grief, actually meet the DSM qualification for for depression and and anxiety and a whole range of issues. But nobody would suggest you'd take MDMA um, just after you found out a loved one died, would they? And nor are those feelings wrong because that's yeah. About- growing and building and being and being human. That's right, right. So the, that, that question, and we were lucky enough to have um, Jill Stark on um, the show last year and she talked really well about, um, you know, really clearly about the social pressure to be happy um, and, and try to diminish that as a, as a stress in itself. If you're not happy, then something's wrong. Um, but um, so often in parts of the self-help industry, they're telling you that if you're not happy, there's something wrong. So number one criticism, creating some sort of sense that of shame or that there's a problem with some aspect of your life. Yep. This 
approach or book is going to fix. Yeah, you've got a, um, a solution. And that's closely uh, linked in with um, number two. Number two. Number two, which is the profit motive, ah. right? So um, so the first one really is just addressing what, the, you know, this relationship between problem and solution. And the second one is the there's the profit motive. So um, like any other consumer product, there are trends in self-help. Um, you know, there are trends that will deal with happiness, for example, on, on one level. There'll be um, trends that are all about dealing with um, toxic workplace. Um, there was a big thing on... Um, uh, I remember about 10 years ago, there seemed to be a, a lot of uh, the, the workplace sociopath. Um, there were a lot of books about... John Ronson's book sort of led that. Yeah, 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 um, and that kind of thing. And, um, and one of the explanations for trends, whether that be fashion, music, and in this case self-help, is because this replicates a market, right? What's a reasonable amount of profit? <laughs> That's a tough question. So, you know, because nearly everything has some profit associated with it. Is your and book some... still available on Amazon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mental, everything you, know, you needed to know about mental health. Um, so what's a reasonable amount of profit to, uh, to be aiming for? Do we want people to be totally working in a profit-free environment or do we accept a little bit? When does profit become on the... When does, when's it on the nose? No, but a profit... Um, um, is fine to to that extent. I think where what we're pointing to as we're dealing with the critique, and maybe in a yep. future week we can yep. do all the positives. Um, but the it, it, it's what's what creates the profit. So um, we made a, a passing distinction between say celebrities and their health help uh, self help books and experts and their mm. self help books. Mm. Um, and celebrity self help books sell mega. Um, um, multiples of of expert self help, um, you know, academics writing a book, for example. So does this come to what's the driver for it? So, for example, as you say, a celebrity trying to raise their profile compared to an uh, academic or a scientist like Brenny Brown or someone who's basing their self help yeah. on science and history and yeah. proven proven. I think so. So we've spoken about um, what's what's her name. Uh, Give us a hint. What area? Um, <laughs> actress, Twenty questions. Married. Um, um, oh, the one who does uh, all the health, um, yeah. the weird stuff. Uh, oh, oh, blonde Gwyneth woman. Paltrow. Yeah, Gwyneth Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. I was going to say yeah. blonde woman. There's something about Mary. Is that the same lady? No. Oh, it's different. <laughs> Pop culture and me, we're not friends. You know, somebody like her is is clearly distinct from somebody yeah. like Brenna Brown. You know, who gets you know a few million hits on her TED talk and stuff like that. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Panel Beater is finishing up on his uh, yep. chapter three, Criticisms of the Self-Help Industry. That's his chapter three. And we've already covered the reinforcement of perception of shame and that you've got a problem, the profit motive. We're up to number three. We're yep. probably going to have to whistle You know what I'll do? Is I'm going to say the last three as a, as a set and let's oh, just good. respond to those and we can um, tie it up. So the last three was uh, closely related to the distinction between celebrity and expert. So a lot of self-help is not um, scientifically validated or at a stretch we might say it is N equals one um, rather than uh, peer review uh, work. Um, uh, that it's, um, well, and uh, that it's often said that it's useful for people who need it the least. So it's not saying people who use it mm-hmm. don't need it at all, mm-hmm. but that, um, that, that uh, when we talk about mental health, for example, one of the big challenges of mental health policy is to get the people who need it most access to it. Um, sure. Um, 
And then the final one was that it's, in fact, not self-help at all, in the words of George Carlin. If you're going to ask somebody else uh, for their approach or their view, then by definition it's not self-help, it's help. (laughs) What about the fact that it... I know we've got to be quick, but it floods the area. So, like, you know, for mental health, for example, we know the biggest things you can do is sleep well, eat well, exercise, deal with your stress levels and pay attention to your relationships. And it's so obvious, but no one does it because they're all on these different self-help books trying this, you know, a trek through the Andes or this, that and the other. And uh, It's been really medicalised, hasn't yeah. it? You know? mm. and so it, flood, it floods out all the stuff that we do <laughs> know works. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.